Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. You know, when you when you hurt yourself, when you, you roll an ankle or uh, your body is hurt, it's very obvious and, and easy in our culture to go to a doctor. And yet, still to this day, the idea that when our brain or mind or thoughts are not serving us, that there's somehow some sort of a stigma. I, th- I think we're mostly through that, but there's still maybe a little stigma attached to therapy. Well, we're here to blow that up today because my guest is a psychotherapist. If you are new to the work of Lori Gottlieb, this episode is going to be very eye-opening to you. And right now, many of you are like, oh, I know her work. Yes, indeed. She was the author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which I think has sold somewhere around 10 million copies. Um, it was the number one audible nonfiction book of the year last year, NPR's favorite book of the year, Time Magazine must read. You get the point. It was extremely well regarded and for good reason. Uh, and our conversation today is so powerful as a derivative of that book and much more. Um, we identify this idea of talking to other people and as you know, oddly simple, but hugely powerful. Uh, We all have strange, individual, mysterious lives. But when you really start to peel back the onion, it's your mind that gives us the ability to transform our lives. So why not do the work? Why not double down on, I mean, you've heard me talk at length about mindset, right? Well, In addition to her clinical practice, uh, Lori writes for The Atlantic, um, this Dear Therapist advice column, which I don't know if you're familiar with that. She's also a regular writer for The New York Times. Her TED Talk was one of the things that really made me want to have her on the show, in addition to, of course, the book. Um, It's one of the most, I think the top 10 watched of the year. So anyway, you get the point. I just can't wait for you to get to the show. So I'm going to stop talking know that what she is about to tell you is going to sew so many things together, so many things in past episodes, the beliefs that I have around mindset, and an opportunity for you to tap into your best self. So let me get out of the way. But before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor, and then we get back with Dr. Lori Gottlieb. Hey, oh, hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company, but I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close, and it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So, of course, I'm biased, but I I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close. And you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts. Okay, that's it. That's my soapbox. That is the commercial, and we'll hope to see you over Creative Life. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome, Lori Gottlieb, to the show. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is such a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, well, we in this community, uh, as I was sharing before we are going live, we are a creator, uh, a community of creators and entrepreneurs. And I largely throw us into two buckets. Um, those of us who identify as creators and, uh, you know, wear it like a badge of honor and think of, you know, whether our next art project, our next book, our next film, our next business that we're building um, is that's just our right. And it's our, our vision that we have for ourselves. And there's a whole other population that is a part of this community, which I call creative curious. And at the center of either one of those communities is mindset. And I often say that the most important words in the world are the ones we say to ourselves. And yet you've, you've, um, you've published a book called maybe you should talk to someone, which is not yourself. So help us understand and maybe give us a little bit of background with your work as not just a writer, but as a psychotherapist, because God knows we all could use your help. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say something about um, you know, how we talk to ourselves, because that's 
that's something that I think a lot of us don't think about. So when I'm doing public speaking and I'm on stage and I'll say to a big audience, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Is it your, the person at work? Is it um, your child? Is it your parent? Is it your sibling? Is it your best friend, right? I get lots of hands for all of those. But what I don't get is that the person that you talk to most in the course of your life is you. People don't realize that. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And I think that's really important because we don't realize how much that voice is, is playing in our head. It's like we're listening to a really um, unpleasant radio station, you know, and it's like all we have to do is change the station, but we don't change it. And so I had a patient who didn't believe me when I was telling her how self-critical she sounded to me. And so I said, I want you to write down everything you say to yourself in the course of a few days and bring it back to me. And she came back the next week and she said, I am such a bully to myself. I can't believe that I talk to myself this way. Things like, oh, you made that mistake. You're so stupid, right? Just these, you know, you would never say that to somebody else, not because you're trying to be nice, but because you actually wouldn't believe they were stupid if they made that same mistake. So, um, so that's a very long way of starting off and saying that I, I that even though, <laughs> even though the book is maybe you should talk to someone, um, I think we first need to start with how do we talk to ourselves? And what I mean by maybe you should talk to someone is that it doesn't necessarily mean you should talk to a therapist, although that is often very helpful, but it means that we need to talk more to one another. And I think we talk a lot about in this culture, um, kind of individualism and really succeeding and independence. And I don't think we talk enough about interdependence and how important those connections are for us in helping us to grow and transform. Yeah. Um, in the book, I say that psychotherapy is a little bit like pornography and that like a lot of people use it, but they don't necessarily um, talk about the fact that they do it. Um, and, and that there's like this kind of shame, I think, and stigma around it. Um, I really think what psychotherapy is, it's just like getting a really good second opinion on your life from somebody who isn't in your life. And in the book, I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And so our friends will offer us idiot compassion, right? So you say, this, this happened, this person did this, and you say, yeah, they're terrible, you're right, they're wrong. You know, we support our friends in that way, but it's not necessarily that helpful because a lot of times what'll happen is you'll notice that your friend is basically telling the same story, but with different characters over and over, right? So they keep getting into these kinds of situations and every time we say, yeah, that's terrible, you're right. Um, it's, but you know, we don't say to them, if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you, which is you know this pattern, right? It's like they have a role in this, in this, this thing that keeps happening. Um, wise compassion is what a therapist will do. A therapist will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see yourself in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. And it has the word compassion in it because it's done in a very compassionate way, but it has the word wise because that's where wisdom comes from. That's where um, movement can happen, is when you're able to say, oh, that's me. I didn't realize I was participating in my own stuckness. Mm. Um, you were asking about uh, my sort of uh, kind of journey to psychotherapy. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's, a very, it's a very circuitous. I think I took the most nonlinear route in the world of how somebody becomes a therapist. Well, we in this community love nonlinear. And I think that, you know, that the story that things are linear is is actually a toxic one because I know so few people that, you know, that bought the map that they were sold that said, if you go to, you know, if you grow up like this and you go to this school and then you get these grades and you get this job and, and it just doesn't look like that. So I would love for you to share your story and make all of us feel better about ours. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, I think in your 20s, and a lot of people experience this where they've, you know, they, they had their lives sort of programmed out for them, right? So you know what you need to do in school, and you know what you need to do to get into college. And then you know what you need to do when you're in college, although it gets a little looser. Um, but still, you pick a major, and you pick like extracurriculars, and, and you know when you need to be in class and those kinds of things, right? And then all of a sudden, you graduate, and you have the whole world there. And you don't know what to do. It's like paralysis, right? Um, and people are so worried that they're going to make a wrong or right decision. And that's why I think my um, pathway to becoming a therapist is interesting because so many people thought I was crazy when I kept switching and making all these different decisions. I started off after college working in the entertainment business. And first I worked in film development, and then I moved over to network development, and I worked at NBC. And when I got to NBC, I was um, I was a junior executive, and uh, the shows that were premiering that year were these two little shows you may have heard of. Um, one is called ER, and the other one is called Friends. And um, I remember when we were working on ER, there was a physician who was our consultant, and he was a real ER doctor, and he made sure that everything looked accurate on the show. And I would spend a lot of time in the ER with him. Originally, it was to do research for the show, and then it became sort of an obsession. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. And I was in my late 20s at the time. And, and he said, you know, maybe you should go to medical school. And I thought that was the most hilarious thing anybody could have said to me. I was a French major in college. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, I was always very sort of math and sciencey, but that wasn't, I was, I, in school, I did the humanities, but I was definitely like, you know, in high school on the math team and doing science bowl and stuff like that. Um, but in college, not at all. And so, um, and I had this great job at NBC. Why, why would I leave that? But eventually I realized he was right, that, that I, I really liked the fictional stories that we were telling on ER and they were done so well. But there was something about the human condition that I was seeing in an ER because nobody goes to an emergency room when they expected something to happen. It's always an inflection point. And I thought that was so fascinating, these inflection points in life, like what happens when there's a big plot twist? What do you do? Um, and so I went up to Stanford for medical school and um, when I got there, it was it was so Silicon Valley, 1999, 2000, right? The, the boom right before the bust. And everybody was saying, um, first of all, the medical field was changing. Managed care was there. Um, I wouldn't be able to spend time with my patients the way that I had envisioned because I loved the whole human condition and story element um, and, and really making meaningful change in people's lives. And so um, between first and second years of medical school, I actually went and worked at a dot-com, <laughs> which not because I was going to leave medical school. Um, and it failed just in time for me to go back to second year of medical school, uh, which was fortuitous. And then, um, and then I realized that, that I just, I didn't want to do the kind of medicine that I thought I would have to practice in the new model. Um, and I started writing and um, I wrote enough that I started getting published and I left medical school to become a journalist. So people would think just from these steps alone, right? You leave this great job at NBC to go to medical school at almost 30 um, and you're not a science person, <laughs> right? And then, and then you're in medical school at a prestigious medical school, one of the best programs in the country, and you leave to go become what? A freelance journalist? Um, and so I, so I left to become a journalist and I, I really loved it because I felt like I was now delving into those stories and, and into the human condition in a way that, um, I really couldn't do or felt I couldn't do as a clinician. And, um, and about 10 years into that, I was now in my late thirties, I had a baby and I love my child dearly. But when, uh, when he was first born, I was dying for some adult conversation during the day. And so because you get all these deliveries when you have a new child, um, 
the UPS guy would come every day and I would detain him in conversation. And he hated that. <laughs> he would literally back away to like the big brown truck, right? I would see him like just trying to get away from me. And then he started tiptoeing to the door and gently placing the packages down so he wouldn't have to ring my doorbell and I would not talk to him. And so I thought, okay, something's wrong here. So I called up the dean um, of the medical school and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you're welcome to come back, but here's the thing. You would have to go through internship residency um, with a toddler, right? Um, and you would be a lot of psychiatry is medication management and prescribing, you know, um, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication um, in 15 minute intervals. And you always loved the, the deeper work. Go get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the work you want to do. And it sounds obvious in retrospect, but it was one of these aha moments. Um, and every time I made one of these changes, people thought I was lost, that I was like a lost soul. But really, and, and the joke at the time, I would always say, you know, I'm either very versatile or very confused, probably a little bit of both. Um, but in the end, I feel like it all made sense. And you don't sometimes know the narrative when you're going through these changes, but you know what's driving you. And I knew what was driving me, and it was always story and the human condition whether it was telling fictional stories at NBC or, um, you know, delving into real stories in medical school and then tell, helping people to tell their stories as a journalist and now as a therapist, helping people to change their stories. I feel like I use my work as a journalist all the time in the therapy room because I'm helping people to edit these faulty narratives that they come in with. And so it might look like I took this very... Um, odd path to becoming a therapist. But I think every single step is very intentional um, when you see the threads that that uh, tie them together. It is interesting how we can connect the dots looking backwards and realize that no efforts ever wasted in our life and that it all contributes to, um, to where we are right now. Um, the subtitle of your book is A Therapist, Her Therapist, and our lives revealed. So for the people who are new to your work, peel back that layer of the onion and share with us how you found some of your most profound insights um, and large part just by being incredibly vulnerable. The candor in your book is just amazing. Uh, and But yet that required this extra layer of um, introspection and sharing what you found. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that. Yeah. So at the very beginning of the book, I say that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. And that is a theme that's woven, I think, throughout the book, that we're all more the same than we are different. I didn't want to be the expert up on high. Um, so in the book, um, you know, I follow the lives of four very different patients as they go through their struggles. And then there's a fifth patient in the book who is me as I go through my own struggle and go to my own therapist. And it sounds like it's a book about therapy, but it's really a book about humanity and about the human condition and how we uh, you know, get in our own ways and how we can get unstuck. And I think that a lot of people uh, wondered, you know, why would I reveal so much of myself in this book? And the truth of the matter is that um, as, as you see in the book, I talk about there were some other books that I was supposed to be writing that people wanted me to write because they thought they were very commercial. Happiness, one of which, right? One, of, one was a happiness book and it made me depressed. I, was, I called it the miserable <laughs> depression inducing happiness book because I felt like it, it couldn't, it could barely scratch the surface of, of what I was seeing as a therapist um, in terms of the richness of people's lives and how much we can all learn from that. Because I really feel that we learn the most when we see ourselves reflected in other people's stories. If you say to someone, you know, you do this or you're like this, our, our sort of natural response is, no, I don't, I'm not like that, right? But if you see yourself in another person's story, you say for yourself, oh, wow, I'm kind of like that or I kind of do that, right? It's a different way of discovering something about yourself. So I canceled the happiness book. And when I canceled the happiness book, um, you know, people said, oh, nobody's going to read this book. Nobody wants to like sit in a therapy room. Nobody's going to read this book. And so I just let it rip because I was like, no one's going to read this book. That's fine. I'm going to write the book that I want to write that I feel is meaningful and important and can change the lives of the three people who will read it rather than write a book for, you know, lots and lots of people that um, that won't be as meaningful. 
And then of course I turned it into my publisher and they started passing it around like candy. And everybody was saying, you know, like, oh my God, this is transformative. And all, all the ways they laughed, they cried, um, you know, whatever it was. And everybody was passing it around. And I thought, okay, well maybe like 300 or 3000 people will read it. Maybe I should clean myself up a little bit, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause then all of a sudden you feel more exposed. Um, but then I didn't clean myself up. And of course, you know, now it's, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. And I feel like the reason that so many people are reading this book is because I didn't clean myself up is because it was so honest. And I think that that's how people learn the most about themselves is when they're in an environment where there's all this candor. And so I think there's a difference between sort of candor and vulnerability, right? And so vulnerability is not, um, going on social media and saying, you know, I've never shared this with anyone before, but I'm going to share it with all of you. You know, there's a certain amount of vulnerability required there, but real vulnerability, I think, is when the stakes are high, right? When when it's like um, you are taking off the mask, and I don't mean the mask that we're all talking about right now during COVID, but the, the emotional mask, right? You take off the mask and um, and you reveal something difficult about yourself, some truth about yourself to someone where it counts, where the stakes are high. Um, and so when I think about um, what that relationship is like between me as a writer and, and the reader, I feel like there is um, a level of vulnerability, but it's not the same as, as being face to face with somebody. At the same time, I do feel like it really helped people to look at themselves in a more honest way because I was being so honest. Mm. If you are just joining, um, wherever you're joining from, I want to say welcome. I'm Chase, sitting down with Lori Gottlieb, uh, an amazing psychotherapist, and most recently the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody, an incredible work. And um, I'm seeing that we've got folks tuning in from every corner of the globe. It's the middle of the night in Europe, yet we've got, <laughs> we're seeing people from Poland and London and... I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that city in Italy, but people chiming in from all over the world saying, thank you for taking your time to share with us. And so in service of this global audience, uh, the number one question that usually is on the lips, hearts, and minds of those watching is, is about getting unstuck. Mm -hmm. There's so much paralysis, especially in the creator and the entrepreneur community. Uh, it often feels like it's, it's never a choice of the smart, easy thing or the dumb, hard thing. It's like which, you know, which hand do you want to cut off? Conceptually speaking, in you know, in entrepreneurship or um, struggling with your identity as an artist or how you find your voice, and and it leads to a lot of paralysis. And you described earlier in this conversation about helping people get unstuck. And so, you know, what if we were sitting in your chair, the collective few thousand of us that are watching right now? What advice would you give this community for getting unstuck since it's such a prevalent problem in our community? Yeah, I think there are two things I would say about that. The first is that um, change is really hard, right? So when we want to make a change in our lives, um, we don't realize that even if it's a positive change, that change comes with loss. One thing that we lose is certainty. We, when we were in the, the former position, right, we were certain and we might have liked how things were, but at least we knew what to expect. It was very predictable. And I think that humans in general don't do well with uncertainty. And sometimes what we do is when there's uncertainty, we fill in the story with something negative that's going to happen. Um, you know, we don't focus on here all the positive things that might happen. And we don't take into account the fact that when you go into uncertainty, it opens up all these possibilities for things that you might not even thought of yet. So, um, so you can't even imagine what those are because you aren't in that situation yet. We know if we stay where we are, things won't change. Um, but there's, there's a real fear of, of that risk of, you know, what if it doesn't work out or what if I make a mistake, not realizing that you will learn something no matter what you do, right? If it works out, it doesn't work out. You will learn something. Um, and change, I think, is hard because it we cling to the familiar. We want to do the familiar thing, even though we say we don't. So there's a difference between what we say and what we do all the time. And if you can close that gap, that's the work of therapy a lot of the times, is closing that gap between what you say you want and what you're actually doing. So so many people will say, like, I want to change. 
and then they don't do anything to change, <laughs> right? Um, Aside from therapy, I think ther therapy is, you know, obviously you being a therapist, this being center central topic of your work, uh, the book. Um, I'm wondering if there, let's say we check the box for therapy. I don't know if I'm speaking for everybody, but let's just assume that that's a box that some subset of us who are listening right now have checked. There certainly are other things that are, whether those are reinforcing behaviors, mindset drills, yeah. like yeah. what are some of those things that you could prescribe again, if we're in your chair, um, assuming we're, we're, we've checked the therapy box and we do want to change and we recognize that we have negativity bias. We recognize that we're saying one thing and doing another, but we've come to you, Lori, to help set us straight. Give us some more tools for our toolbox. Well, I think one of the things that gets in the way of change is, um, is again, going back to those stories that we tell ourselves. And, you know, I think that a lot of people feel like, um, like when they come to therapy, they feel like, well, if I just get to know myself better, then I'll know what I want and then I'll know what direction to go in. Um, and partly that's true, right? But I think therapy is also um, a process of unknowing. So it's, it's letting go of those stories that you've been telling yourself that are keeping you stuck. And some examples of those stories are things like, nothing will ever work out for me. Everything is working out for everybody else. Um, I don't trust myself. I don't trust other people. Um, you know, I'm not good enough. Um, you know, whatever it is. And you, sometimes you don't even realize that those are the stories that you're carrying around. And so it's really important to, to know, you know, what, what are you saying to yourself and what are these stories and how do they get in the way? Um, I, I see that all the time with people. I also see another thing that gets in the way of change is expecting other people to make the change for you. So, <laughs> so, so many times, right? I mean, oh, so, so I hate, I'm sorry to laugh. I mean, it's just cause it's so obvious and yet it's everywhere. Like if you just were, you know, and, yeah, you know, well, see, so people come into therapy all the time. And the first thing they say is I want something to change, but usually what they want is they want someone else or something else to change. And that doesn't mean by the way, that there aren't difficult circumstances out there that might be getting in your way, or there aren't even difficult people that might be getting in your way. Um, I remember when I was doing my clinical training, a supervisor said before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right. So it's like, yes, it's real. Like, you know, difficult people are real and there are real obstacles in your way. That's true. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, what are you, what is your role in this? And I remember, um, you know, when I was in therapy, my therapist said at one point, cause I was going through all the reasons why I couldn't make a certain change. And he said, you remind me of a, of a, a cartoon and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, no bars, right? So, so that's most of us. We feel like we're trapped. We feel like we can't make the change. But all we have to do is walk around the bars. That's on us. But we don't do it because with freedom comes responsibility. So if you walk around the bars, now you're responsible for what happens. You can't blame it on this circumstance or this person. And I think that scares people from making changes because they feel like, um, they feel the burden of the responsibility of making a change and having it not work out. And I think that if we can be more focused on process instead of outcome, if you can be more focused on the process of making the change um, and what that will do for you, how that will help you to grow as a person and how that will help you to grow personally and professionally, then I think it feels less loaded. It feels like I'm doing this thing. It's going to be a process of growth no matter how it works out. And I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to learn a lot about myself. And I also, I always tell people in their 20s, never take a job if you don't, if you aren't a little bit scared. Like you should always be a little bit scared of the next big step, right? Because otherwise you just, you're complacent. You're not going to make change. So you always want to be on that edge of um, kind of enough, enough of a stretch that you feel slightly uncomfortable, but not so much of a stretch where you really, you're not ready for it. And I think that change is like that too. Some people will try to make these huge changes that they're not ready for. And it's kind of like you want to take these small steps and see what happens. And so, um, you know, I always say that, that um, most big transformations come about from the hundreds of tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. And so if you're afraid of change, what is a smaller change that you can make as an interim step? Mm, beautiful. 
Now, I'm going to ask you to sew 20 years of experience into a single response. So it may be a little bit of a heavy question, but certainly there are some threads of consistency between you know, the problems that have been presented to you by your patients and the, the path to success. And I'm wondering what are foundationally the most common threads to success that you've found over, you know, surveying in your, in your clinical research and your just, um, uh, you know, just your day to day, you see so many cases and presumably you're recognizing patterns along the way. And I'm dying to know, as are the, the people who are watching right now, what are some of the most common things where people go off the rails and what do you prescribe as a solution? In terms of people um, not being able to move forward, I would say um, a lack of flexibility. So, you know, they come in with a very rigid idea about something, usually about themselves or about other people um, and the world. And um, they don't have a lot of flexibility. They don't make a lot of room for more versions of that story. So you see that um, you see that in personal relationships. You see that in professional relationships, where people assume a lot of things about other people and and that person's effect on them. And they and I always give them an exercise, and I say, I want you to write this story from the other person's point of view. I want you to take their point of view and argue it for them, right? And when they do that, even if you don't, you don't have to agree with it, you don't even have to like it, but I want you to get into their mind and imagine if they were sitting on my couch, what they would be saying to me, what that, would, what that story would sound like. And usually what happens in that exercise is it doesn't necessarily change their mind about their perspective, but what it does is it, 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 it gives them more flexibility with the problem at hand. So it's kind of like, oh, actually, maybe this is also going on that I didn't realize. Or maybe I'm doing this that is adding to part of the reason that we're both backed into our corners and we can't move forward. Um, or I didn't realize maybe that, yeah, I kind of am contributing to the problem by doing this. Or they may believe that I am acting this way, even though that's not my intention. right? So you learn a lot by just opening your mind to writing the story from a completely different perspective than your own. So that, mm. that I think is just something we need to do in, in every aspect of our lives. Oh, very powerful. I know I hate doing that, but that's where the, <laughs> the answers are in flipping, you know, the other side of the same coin and, and recognizing that most people aren't angry, hateful, mean people who are out to do you wrong. And if you can try and rewrite, um, your understanding of the story from their perspective. Um, yeah, we call that sort of rotating the problem is how we term it. It's like you want to take the problem and you just want to rotate it a little bit. That sounds a lot better to me than confessing that I'm wrong. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm rotating the problem here. <clears throat> uh, well, usually... No, I was going to say, usually problems are, are really complicated, right? They're not as binary as we think they are. And an example of that is this. So, and this might sound unrelated to business, but I think it's very much related. Um, so a lot, I see a lot of couples in my practice. And often what will happen is, let's say that I'm seeing a man and a woman, and the woman says to the, to the guy, I really want to understand your inner life. I really want to get to know you better. Um, I want you to share more with me. I feel like I can't really get to know you, you know, right? So then he does. And let's say he starts crying, right? And all of a sudden she looks at me like a deer in the headlights. Like, what do I do with this? Right? It's like, you asked for that. You wanted that. You said that you wanted to experience more of his inner life and he's giving you that. And then what happens is she actually isn't sure that she wants that. Right? So when, when we have positions, and I think that's a great, a great example because when we take certain positions, um, we don't realize that maybe we have ambivalence about our own position. We never consider that. We're like, you don't share your life with me. And she could, she could be railing about that for weeks. But does she really want him to? Or does she really want him to in that way? Or what is going on with her? Did she have some ambivalence? Um, so I think we need to examine our own um, you know, positions and, and how much nuance there might be to our own positions and then acknowledge that the other person probably has a lot of nuance to their position too. 
Yeah, that's the, the challenge, right? There's so much nuance, and without the uh, ability to communicate um, thoughtfully in tough moments, it's very, very hard to communicate across the, the the so much nuance that is a human relationship. Um, you know, speaking of rotating uh, the conversation, I want to rotate our conversation uh, a little bit more away from the psychotherapy and a little bit more toward your creative process because you wrote a, a book that I'm looking at Goodreads here, 10,000 ratings and thousands of reviews, which is it's virtually unheard of. And you mentioned being on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. That is a huge feat in in the creative endeavor of writing a book. And you are renowned for your vulnerability, offering yourself up as that fifth patient. And so I'm dying, as, as so many creators and artists that are listening and watching right now, we're constantly programming one another, I think justifiably so, that the, your work will be stronger the more you're, more of yourself that you put into it. You know, that is where you get your voice and that is personal style and that is so many, you know, there's only one you. How, from a creative standpoint, did you approach writing the book such that you could you could be so masterful at at getting yourself you know turning yourself inside out for for the 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 art what was your process i think first and foremost my process was to be honest and i think that um you know with if my patients were going to be that vulnerable then i felt like um i needed to be as vulnerable as they were. And, you know, the difference is that their names aren't there and mine is. So maybe, <laughs> maybe mine, mine was a little riskier. Um, but I really felt that that was important. And I also felt like because we are all so similar and I, I purposely picked people who looked very different on the surface, right? So if you look at the, the people that I picked, different ages, different genders, different personalities, um, the first guy that you meet, you know, has a, has a very unique personality, right? He, um, you know, he's very insulting to me at the beginning and very abrasive. And then, you know, you come to love him. Um, I, I, I really wanted to show that um, no matter how we present underneath it all, we're very much the same in terms of our fears, our anxieties, the things that that trip us up, the ways we get in our own ways, um, how we how we get stuck in life, um, and how we all feel so alone in it. And that was the big piece of it was like how we all feel so alone in it. And so I think that every chapter is in conversation with every other chapter, um, meaning that um, you know I think that the themes are woven throughout the book. Um, and they relate to every single person. I, I should say also, you know, I write the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic, um, which is a weekly kind of non-advice advice column in the sense of, I say non-advice because um, I don't give prescriptive advice per se, but I help people to think about their stories a little bit differently so they can figure out what they want to do. Um, and I think that in both of those writing processes, um, it's really important to just be human. Um, you know, I'm not talking as a therapist to people in, I'm, I am a therapist, but I'm not talking sort of as a therapist might, um, in the advice column. And I think in the book, again, I'm just, I'm just being human. And I think that in anything we do in life, the more human you are, um, you, the more, the more traction you're going to get, people are going to want to hear what you have to say. People are going to be interested in you because, um, you know, they feel some kind of connection to you. You heard it here. It's, I think it's amazing wisdom. Um, uh, continuing to turn the page on our conversation because there's your work is so vast. Uh, what's this Netflix series you've got on coronavirus? I didn't have a chance to go deep on this and I, I just, I just stumbled on it. And um, we are in the midst of a pandemic and that you are, um, advising us in this this series on Netflix. Tell us more. I, I, I'm dying to know more because I don't often walk in without having the full picture of, or what I think, of the, what I consider a full picture of my guests so that I can talk them about, about the whole range of things that they're doing. And this was just a whiff. I came, came across my desk too little too late. Tell me about it. Yeah. So Netflix has this series, the Explained series, and they did um, the Coronavirus Explained. 
And um, they asked me to be a part of that mini series where I talk about coping during COVID. And so I was, I was really grateful to participate in that. Can you, can you share? Cause we, uh, last time I checked uh, numbers were flat or up in a lot of places. So, yes. you know, us, it seems very American to like, okay, we've been doing this for three months now we're done and we're moving on. Yeah. <laughs> but the sun, yeah. And it's not, it's is, not that at all. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, it's, it. no, it doesn't. We are still very much in the midst of COVID-19 and, um, you know, it, it has been very hard. It's, it's probably the, the first time in most of our lifetimes that we've had a collective experience of having the same stressor that is affecting everybody. And yet people are going to be affected in their own unique ways. And so what, what I see is a lot of, um, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of grief, a lot of loss, a lot of, um, you know, difficulty coping. Um, but I'll tell you something, I see something really positive too. And I don't mean that the virus in, is in any way positive, but I see something really positive about humanity in this. And what I see is that if you had said like four months ago, right, when we all started um, needing to shelter in place, if, if you had said, okay, so in, you know, in a few weeks, everybody's going to be um, staying at home. Um, you know, you're going to have to wash your hands a million times a day. You could get this deadly virus just by talking to somebody, <laughs> right? Um, you can't go anywhere except for a grocery store or a pharmacy with a mask on and gloves on, like, you know, like out of a science fiction movie. If you do decide to go outside and take a walk, um, no, you can't even see your neighbors smile at you or because you have a mask on. Um, like basically everything that made us feel human seemed to have been stripped away. And if you had said to us, okay, that's going to be the situation. And by the way, it's going to go on indefinitely. Like, it's not like this is going to be two weeks of your life but it's going to go on for months and months indefinitely. Um, I think many people would say, oh, I can't cope with that. But look at how we're doing. I mean, people are coping. I think that it shows that we are so resilient. We are so adaptable. We are so flexible. Not that we're happy about it, um, you know, but I want to say something about two things that I think are really important about coping with the coronavirus. One is the both and of the situation. And that's that on the one hand, we're in the midst of this, this horrible suffering, right? Um, and suffering in different ways. There's, there's loss of life, there's loss of health, there's loss of income, loss of jobs, right? Um, but there are, there are other losses that I think we're afraid to talk about. And we won't talk about them because we feel like there's this hierarchy of grief. You know, like it's the grief Olympics. And, and if you don't, if you don't have one of those, one of those ones that rates, you know, the highest, then you can't talk about it. And yet we need to talk about the other losses, the loss of, you know, the, the normal routines of daily life, the loss of this illusion of certainty or stability that I think a lot of us had, even though it's very much an illusion. Um, the, the loss of, of all the things that do feel like they make us human. But at the same time, um, we're afraid to say like, I'm really glad I don't have to commute an hour and a half to work every day, right? Um, I get to read a book now, or I get to see my child more who was home doing remote learning. Um, and so now my 14 year old will talk to me, <laughs> right? I mean, so it's, it's both and. Um, and I think that that's, people have a lot of trouble with both and. They wanna see something as one thing or another thing. So just in life, I think as we emerge from this, as when, whenever that happens, um, I think there are things that we can learn from this experience and take with us, which is how do you live in the both and? How do you live in uncertainty? How do you experience joy in the midst of suffering? Because that's really what life is. And I think the other thing is about how we talk about our feelings, that we have this idea that there are negative feelings like anxiety, sadness, anger, and then there are positive feelings like joy, you know, whatever it might be. And I always say that there's no such thing as a negative feeling. Your feelings are like a compass. They tell you what direction to go and even envy, right? People always say, I don't want to feel envious. And I always say, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. You, you're envious of someone, great. That tells you what is your desire. And then what do you need to do to pursue that desire? Instead of sitting there going, I'm so envious and I'm going to try, I'm a bad person for feeling envy, so I'm going to try not to feel envious. No, feel it, feel it a lot because that's going to fuel your desire and say, oh, I want, this is what I want. This is my desire. Maybe it's not even the exact same thing, 
but it, it gets you to pursue it as a, it gets you to take action. The same thing with anxiety, where we feel like, you know, oh, I don't want to feel anxiety. There are two kinds of anxiety. And, and during COVID is particularly relevant. There's productive anxiety, which is anxiety when you're reasonably worried about something and it motivates you to take action to keep yourself healthy, right? So um, productive anxiety is, productive anxiety outside of COVID is, I have this big project. You should be anxious about that because you want to do well. So it motivates you to really put in the effort. If you're like, yeah, I don't really care, you're going to phone it in. Um, during coronavirus, um, productive anxiety is, there's this virus out there and it's dangerous. So I'm going to take measures to protect myself. I am going to wash my hands. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to stay inside. All of those things. If you were not adequately worried about this, you, you would put yourself at risk and put others at risk. So that's productive anxiety. Anxiety could be incredibly productive. Unproductive anxiety, on the other hand, is obsessive rumination. It's what we do a lot of, right? We all do this, where you're checking the latest headlines. Um, you're thinking about something that might happen next week or the week after that's bad. Um, something is like futurizing, catastrophizing, something that hasn't happened yet and may never even happen. And yet you're spending a lot of emotional real estate on it. Um, that's not helpful because it's not helping you to move forward or to protect yourself, like the washing of the hands or like doing well on a project. That kind of anxiety just keeps you stuck in place. So, um, and so I think that what the reason that people go into the unproductive, you know, that say obsessive rumination is when they're feeling feelings that they don't want to feel because they're afraid of the feelings. And yet in reality, um, our fear of feelings is scarier than the feelings themselves. And so what do we do when we don't want to feel feelings? Well, um, too much food, too much alcohol, too much mindless scrolling on the internet, which a colleague of mine called, um, she said, um, the internet is the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there, right? But it doesn't actually kill the pain. What it does is it numbs you out. And so if you're not, if you're not aware of your feelings, it's like walking around with a glitchy GPS. You don't know what direction to go and you don't know what you want. So it's much more productive to feel your feelings and say, oh, I'm anxious. What does that tell me? I'm sad. What does that tell me about what's not working and what I can do about it, right? If you do nothing, it's not going to change, even if you try to cover it up with, you know, all of these behaviors. It'll come out in a short-temperedness, in insomnia, in a distractedness, in a lack of focus. It's not helpful to not to try to not feel your feelings. Wisdom. <laughs> spoken like we've got uh tina from facebook Lori, your book was amazing thank you so much i loved it quiet storm andy graham uh ashley lewis so many folks uh being expressing gratitude for your work a uh, really interesting question came in from jd smith around your uh the the lens that you just put on the coronavirus and jd says I'm honestly very scared of losing one huge aspect of being human, and that's physical contact. Mm -hmm. I feel people are going to be less likely to shake hands or hug coming out of this. And it seems like from that experience, it might be losing more and more of the connection that it means to be human. He says, I, I hope I'm wrong. And um, what, what would you share to that if JD was sitting in your chair? Yeah, so that's absolutely true. In fact, there's a term for it, which is skin hunger. And so what we're experiencing is skin hunger. Um, in the course of a day, I don't think people realize how much they actually touch other people in normal times. So maybe you like shake hands with someone, or you give someone a hug or give them a high five or, um, you know, you're, you're just always touching people. Even like, you know, in Starbucks, like you might you might end up like touching the hand of the person who handed you the your latte. Right. Um, there's a lot of physical contact in our daily lives that now has has, you know, we've temporarily suspended. Um, and it's really hard. We need it. In fact, when you look at like um, babies and orphanages, right, if they don't get, they, they, you can feed them, you can give them everything they need to survive except holding them, the physical touch, and they don't develop properly. They actually don't meet their developmental milestone. So as humans, we are wired for physical touch, for physical connection. And so I think that um, part of how we might cope with that right now is to, um, I think we can't sort of futurize about that. We can't say, oh, how much longer is it going to be and all of that. I think we have to focus on what can I do today that will give me some sense of connection. It might not give me the physical connection, but that will give me some other sense of, um, that will hit sort of some of those same neurological pathways 
um, that are that are adjacent to physical connection. And and that will sustain me in the meantime. And so that means I think one of the silver linings of uh, of this period has been people are really noticing their priorities. Who is important to me? What is important to me? Where am I spending my time? Where am I focusing my attention? And what are the things that have been dropped that actually I don't need to come back to because they were not nourishing me? And so, um, you know, who are the people that now you can have longer conversations with? Who are the people that you can connect with in other ways in a much deeper and more meaningful way than you ever have? And can that sustain you in the meantime? as we go through this period of, of needing to be physically distanced. Mm. Thank you. JD's thanking you right now, as are lots of people from around the world. Uh, I want to pursue one last thread uh, as we wind down our conversation. Uh, it's one that's near and dear to me and at this community. And we talk about creativity as, um, as a habit, uh, as a muscle that we develop. It's a way of operating as John Cleese once said. Um, and if you buy the argument that as a core argument for my book, creative calling, if you buy the argument that we're all creative and that creativity is a muscle, let's just take that for a second and map that to we're all human and what muscles should we be working to strengthen in order to be our highest performing self through the lens of psychotherapy and your work? What are the core skills, if you will, or habits that a healthy, well-adjusted um, human being, to use your card-carrying member um, analogy, what, what are the, what's the muscle that we should work to build in order to thrive? I would say the self-compassion muscle. And I think that's because a lot of us feel like um, if you have compassion for yourself, you're not going to hold yourself accountable and you're not going to make things happen. There's this, this big disconnection between being kind to yourself and having compassion for yourself and feeling like you're letting yourself off the hook. That's not true. Um, a lot of people feel like they need to self-flagellate to motivate themselves, you know, like if you're really hard on yourself, if you can be a taskmaster, if you can, you know, be that critical voice, um, you're going to motivate yourself, right? Um, and the opposite happens. The self-flagellation prevents you from being creative. It prevents you from taking risks. It prevents you from going anywhere outside of your comfort zone or anywhere where you might not um, know that you're going to automatically succeed. Self-compassion is not only healthy for yourself in terms of motivating you, it, you're actually going to be much more accountable to yourself if you can be kind to yourself and say, um, you know, even the way that you would even talk to a kid, like let's say that they weren't doing what they needed to do, you would be incredibly compassionate with them and also be asking them the good questions about what happened. Why, why did you not do that, right? Um, you can do that in a compassionate way, which, is, which opens up the space for people to self-reflect and really be honest with themselves about what happened instead of making up an excuse that might be the thing that placates somebody in the moment but isn't the real answer. Um, and I think the other part of self-compassion is self-compassion breeds compassion in others and for others. And so if we have a, a world that is more compassionate, there is more room for creativity. There is more room for experimentation. There is more room for doing things that, you know, coloring outside the lines a little bit. Um, people often feel really safe when they're coloring inside the lines because it's like, we all know that. And people get a little bit anxious about people who color outside the lines. And so if we have more compassion for one another, we see, again, going back to our conversation about nuance, we see the nuances. And when we see the nuances, we relax a little bit and we are more willing to, um, to look for those places where people are coloring outside of the lines and to really embrace that. So I think it, it really starts with a place of, of um, self-compassion and compassion for others. And, you know, people always ask me when I'm like creatively, when I'm writing, um, what happens when I'm stuck, when I'm really in this place of, you know, not being able to get anywhere. And I always say that I just, I get really kind to myself and I say, you know what, you need a break and you need to walk outside right now and you need to see trees. I live in LA, so I can do that. Um, <laughs> and, um, and no matter where I am, I can, I can see trees. And so um, I, I will walk around the block 
And just doing that, just that act of kindness and saying, instead of like sitting there at the computer and like wringing your hands and pulling your hair out and telling yourself you're a terrible writer and you can't figure it out and all those things, just go be really kind to yourself and say, you know what? You know what? You just need a break right now. That's all. It's the kindest thing I could do for myself. Just go take, you know, and instead of the self-flagellation, you don't deserve a break because you're not, you're not producing anything right now. It's the opposite. It's like, because I'm not producing anything, I need to go outside, need to be kind to myself. I need to see some trees and I need to like just decompress. And then I've never had a situation where I have taken a walk around the block and come back and been as stuck as I had been before. Never has that happened. That's the empirical evidence that it works right there. <laughs> it's anecdotal, right. but it, it works for me. And I, I recommend it to my therapy clients all the time. And, you know, whatever works for them, it might not be the walking around the block for them, but whatever the kindness looks like for them to disrupt that, um, you know, that loop that they're in, that kind of self-flagellation loop. If you can disrupt that, that's where the creativity comes from. Ashley Lewis, Lewis uh, from Facebook says, your spirit is so healing and you have found the perfect profession for yourself clearly and wants to thank you. Um, Tina, again, complimenting your book. Maybe Steve's already begging for a rewatch of this video. On behalf of the community and Creative Live, I just want to say thank you so much for providing, especially that last nugget of um, self-compassion and kindness. Um, it's helpful knowing that that is a, a tactic that you uh, use on yourself um, in moments of creative block. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I know you, you're working on a handful of things, including the, it's ABC, right? That's doing the television show. Um, we it's in that family. We aren't sure yet. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, congratulations. Can you give us any, um, any update on what's coming next or where we should, I know you got the column, you've got the podcast with Katie Couric, you've got TV stuff coming on. There's so much um, on the horizon for you. Where do you want us to keep our eyes focused besides on your book, which if you haven't read it yet, it's a must read, but any other guidance you'd you'd uh, point us in the right direction for finding more of your work or where would you want sure. to go? Sure. Um, you know, I think that the the TED Talk is, uh, you know, really useful, especially for creative people or people who are entrepreneurs um, in terms of how do we how do we change those stories and how do we become aware of maybe some of the stories that we don't even realize we're telling ourselves um, and how to kind of unlock that. Um, I think my, my weekly column in the Atlantic, uh, dear therapist, um, I, you know, I write that with an eye toward not specifically answering the question that comes in, although that's what I'm doing, but I really write it with an eye toward, um, having every single reader see a piece of themselves in the solution. So, um, people find that helpful. And I think in the podcast, which launches, uh, next month, um, you know, we're, we're trying to do the same thing. And what's exciting about the podcast um, which will be with iHeart and, and as you said, Katie Couric. Um, I think what's really exciting about it is in my column, you don't get to see what happened after I wrote to that person, right? After I answered their question. But in the podcast, and I'm doing it with Guy Winch, who is also a TED Talker that a lot of people might know. He's fantastic. Um, um, we have the we have the person come on. They tell us what their issue is. We talk about it the way therapists talk about it, and how do we conceive of a problem, which is very different, I think, from how people out in the world think about the problem. We go back, we give some suggestions, they try them out, and then they come back and tell us how it went. And when we talk about creativity, I think that one of the hallmarks of creativity is being able to say, let's let's consider this an experiment. Like everything you do is an experiment. And just like a scientific experiment, you don't know how it's going to work out. You can have a hypothesis about how it works out, but you don't know until you actually do the experiment. And so these are like human experiments. And so we say to people, go try it and you're going to let us know how it goes. And then we're going to learn as much from what didn't work as what did. So we're really excited to, to, uh, to bring that to people. Ooh, so excited for that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, again, people all over the world. Um, shouting and high-fiving and fist bumping. And I forget what this emoji is where you put your hands in the air, but <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the show. Congrats on all of the success with the book. It's spectacular. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, everybody uh, signing off until uh, your next episode here at Creative Live, hopefully tomorrow. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me 
so much juice, I can't even tell you, so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here, whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.